But if you have your Bible, please do open with me to Luke chapter 1. You might think this is a kind of passage we would have in and around the Advent season, um, and that being the case, um, uh, we're not in the Advent season, but as I said, in this historical moment, I thought uh, it would be appropriate for us to just fix our eyes on this birth announcement of a king whose reign would know no end. And the reason for that is because all of us will be aware by now that we're living through a significant historical moment. Queen Elizabeth is dead. Her death marks the end of her reign. The end of the longest reigning monarch in the history of the United Kingdom. A journalist named Jonathan Friedland in The Guardian earlier this week wrote that her death has shaken the country deeply because she was such a steady centre amidst constant flux. Now I'm sure you, like me, have heard and picked up on various other comments that several public figures have made in recent days pointing to the Queen's role as a steady constant in an ever-changing society. Liz Truss said she is the rock on which modern Britain was built who provided us with the stability and strength we needed. When such a steady centre is removed, we get nervous and we're worried a little bit at times about what might lie ahead. We can feel shaky. Of course, we don't just experience that in light of the death of a monarch. When any area of our life that has given us a measure of stability is removed or collapses, we wonder what does the future hold? I think such feelings and sentiments that have been made in the public square over the last few weeks reveal something that we're all longing for. In the instability of our times, every one of us longs for stability. We long for governance that is solid, for a reign that is stable, we long for a reign that does not change, that does not end. Queen Elizabeth's reign, like all other reigns of earthly leaders before her, has been brought to an end by death. Death has demonstrated once again its sovereignty over another earthly monarch. But for us who are Christians this morning, we don't have to be shaken when temporary centers are removed. For we have a higher king whose reign will never be ended by death. A king who has demonstrated his sovereignty over death. Death's reign is ended by the greater reign of Jesus Christ. 
Tomorrow, many of us will watch the funeral of Queen Elizabeth. If we don't watch it live, that's not our thing, we'll be bombarded with it in the news. It is unavoidable at the moment. And this death that has brought her reign to an end, I think gives us a backdrop against which we can appreciate afresh the incomparable and far superior reign of Jesus Christ, our true King. This morning, I want us to look together at a fresh vision of the glory of Christ, to remind us of our steady centre in the midst of flux, a steady centre that will never give way. And I am hoping and praying this morning that this vision of our mighty, glorious King, Jesus Christ, will be fixed in your mind as you watch tomorrow or see things in the news tomorrow. I want us to be thinking tomorrow in light of the Queen's death, another monarch whose reign was ended by death. I want us to be thinking that I have a king whose reign is not ended by death. And more than for just tomorrow, any time you experience the destabilizing of a center that's important to you being removed. I want this vision of Christ, your constant, to be stabilizing for you. So what I want to do is turn to this birth announcement of Luke 1, and I want us to look at four aspects of our true king's glory and reign that set him apart as an incomparable king, and that gives us a steady constant on which we can build our lives. So to see four aspects of the reign of Christ that makes his reign completely incomparable. And then seeing that, finding stability in the constant flux we find ourselves in. The first thing I want us to consider in this passage is the uniqueness of this king's birth. Of the billions of humans who have lived throughout history. Of the many humans who have raised to positions of leadership, none of them entered the world in the way Jesus Christ did. His entrance into this world was completely unique. The first thing to be observed in this passage about the announcement of Jesus' birth is that this was going to be a birth from a virgin. This conception and birth would not be brought about in the natural fashion. We see this stressed twice there in Luke 1 verse 27. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a virgin. And the virgin's name was Mary. When the conception is announced, Mary asks in verse 34, How can this be since I am a virgin? And that's a good question. How can a virgin conceive and become pregnant and still remain a virgin? The angel explains how this will come about in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, move powerfully upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. In some way, the Holy Spirit was going to powerfully move upon Mary so that she would become pregnant 
and within her egg cell would be God. Whoa. Now to grasp the miracle of the virgin birth, we must first grasp the eternal nature or what we call the pre-existence of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He did not begin to exist in the Incarnation or at his birth. John explains this in his own majestic way at the beginning of his Gospel. John chapter 1 verse 1 and 2 were familiar many of us with these words. In the beginning was the Word. That's the word that John uses for Jesus Christ before he was the historical Jesus. He hadn't been given the name Jesus, remember, in eternity past. So he calls him the eternal word, the, the revelation of God, the one who emanates out eternally from God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. You see, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, existed eternally as the Son of the Father. There was never a time when he was not. And John goes on to explain, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The birth of Jesus Christ was the incarnation, sorry, the conception and birth of Jesus Christ was the incarnation of the eternal word. The, the incarnation was the incarnation. What do I mean by that? It is the point where the eternal word, the second person of the Godhead, moved from his dwelling place with God to enter our world. The virgin birth was the Door through which the eternal Son of God entered into human history. To identify with us. To take on our nature to heal our nature. And the birth of this king is unique among all other births because his birth was not the beginning of his existence. Every other human being who has been born and entered this world, that marked the beginning of their existence. That was not so for this king. And let me just, in passing, mention very quickly three re reasons why this doctrine of the virgin birth is very important, in fact, absolutely essential for us to understand fully the gospel. First, the virgin birth preserves the human nature of Christ from the infection of original sin. This is really important. All of us inherit a corrupt nature from our first father, Adam. The line of descent biologically from Adam was partially interrupted through the virgin birth. And so Christ is preserved from Adam's sin. He's also shielded from Mary's sin by this mysterious work of the Holy Spirit. So the virgin birth actually sets Christ apart as a sinless, not corrupted by the fall, human. Second reason why the virgin birth is important. It shows that salvation had to come from outside of ourselves. It had to come from God. We could not save ourselves. We could not produce our own Redeemer. In the virgin birth, God's initiative is on display 
in salvation. God takes the initiative, enters our world to save us from ourselves, from our sin. Third reason why the virgin birth is important is because it means our God identifies with us in all of our weakness. In Hebrews 4.15 we read, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, one who was tempted in every way as we are, yet is without sin. You see, our God gets us. As John Calvin said, Christ put on our feelings along with our flesh. Jesus Christ, our great high priest, knows what human tiredness feels like. He knows what stress feels like. He is familiar with grief, acquainted with suffering. He knows what it feels like to stand at the grave of a loved one and weep. He knows what loneliness feels like. He knows what betrayal and rejection and hurt feels like. He knows what it is to actually stand in front of the reality of his own death. The uniqueness of the birth of this King, Jesus Christ, sets him apart as incomparable. And this beginning, that was not really a beginning, gives us stability. We have an eternal King who lives forever, who can come alongside us in our weakness, who gets what we're going through like no one else. This king will always live to be with us in our pain, to sympathize with us and to help us through. There's no other king or monarch in the universe who can do what this king can do for us. So the uniqueness of his birth is the first aspect of his reign that sets him apart as incomparable. The second now is seen in the significance of his name. One of the first things that was being asked when the crown passed from Elizabeth II to King Charles was what will his name be? When a new monarch comes to the throne they can choose what their regnal name will be. When Elizabeth was asked what name she wanted to use upon the death of her father, King George VI, she famously said, my own, of course. I want to be known as Elizabeth. There was a bit of speculation, I don't know if you picked it up, that Charles was going to be known as King George VII. Did you hear that? He wanted to avoid the negative associations with previous kings named Charles. I think it was Charles I who was the only king who was tried and executed for treason. And so Charles was like, oh, no, I want to be associated with Charles. <coughs> but it seems to be because he's been known as Prince Charles for so long, he's decided it may just confuse people too much to move away from that. Well, in verse 31 of our passage, the angel said to Mary that this new king was to be called Jesus. And Matthew tells us of his gospel that he's given that name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Has any other monarch been given a name like that and a mission like that? Queen Elizabeth in 2011 in her Christmas speech said, Although we're capable of great acts of kindness, 
History teaches us that sometimes we need saving from ourselves, and in fact I would say always we need saving from ourselves, from our recklessness or our greed. God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher nor a general, important though they are, but he sent a saviour with the power to forgive. And the Queen said there, we need saving from ourselves. We need saving from ourselves. She is included in that statement. Queen Elizabeth had to be saved from her sins. She could save no one from their sins. Here's a second aspect of our King's reign that sets him apart as incomparable. Our King, Jesus, can save us from our sins. No other king or queen can do that. Why not? Every other king or queen born has their own sin. They don't have free hands to take our sin because their hands are filled with their own. Jesus is the king who comes to reign in righteousness and who comes to give us the gift of his righteousness. He has a righteousness that can be counted to us, put, put into our bank account. In Jeremiah 23, 6, Jeremiah said this king would have another name, the Lord our righteousness. What a name. He takes our sin off of us. He gives us his righteousness. As the angel announced to the shepherds in Luke 2, 10 and 11, Fear not, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour who is Christ the Lord. You see, Christmas, I've said this before, we have to see Christmas is an indictment against us before it is good news. What do I mean? Well, here the angel said, Christmas is good news of great joy about a saviour being born. And if a saviour has to be born, then we have to be saved from something. What is it we have to be saved from? Our sin and the consequences. Eternal hell. And so good news of great joy. There's one who can save you from sin. Save you from hell. Save you from condemnation. That is good news of great joy for all people. Fear not. I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, Jesus, Christ the Lord. This makes our King incomparable and it gives us stability. Here's a king who has authority over sin. He's above sin. This king's salvation is sure and reliable. Those who hope in him will never be put to shame. We don't have to fear our death or the anger or judgment of God because this king can take away every sin and credit our account with his righteousness. So that in the end, when we stand before our holy God, our maker, we can say, Lord, I have nothing in my hands but the righteousness of Christ. And the Father will say, it is enough. <coughs> the significance of his name is the second way he is set apart in this passage as an incomparable king. The third way he's set apart is seen in the greatness of his character. Summarizing the character of this king's reign in verse 32, the angel simply says, 
he will be great. Now this speaks of his omnipotent greatness as the King of kings and Lord of lords. But it also speaks of the greatness of his character, his moral character. In Boris Johnson's tribute to the Queen, which was a fantastic ten-minute speech, if you want an example of fine oratorical brilliance, um, this was it. Um, he referred to Elizabeth as Elizabeth the Great. He said he wanted her to be known by that name, but apparently it's going to be Elizabeth the Faithful. Um, so keep an eye out for that. Not that I have an inner track on such things. Just <laughs> reading the newspapers. He said of Elizabeth the Great, when I call her that, Elizabeth the Great, I should add one final quality, her humility. Her single bar electric fire to keep her warm and Tupperware using refusal to be grand. Isn't it striking that when he mentioned her greatness, straight away he felt the need to speak of her humility. Why is that? You see, we have a deep instinct, instinct that tells us that greatness is not just about having authority and power. Greatness, true greatness, is about exercising authority and power in an appropriate manner. In a gracious and humble manner. Jesus is the king spoken of in Psalm 145, 3, where we read, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Here, Jesus, our sovereign king of glory, is the king with all sovereign authority, greatness, and power. And how did he exercise all of that dominion and authority and power? He humbled himself. As Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 2, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What do we read next? Therefore God the Father has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The American pastor theologian Jonathan Edwards has written, In the person of Christ we meet together infinite glory and lowest humility, infinite majesty and transcendent meekness. The deepest reverence towards God and yet equality with God in the person of Christ are conjoined absolute sovereignty and perfect resignation. He truly is an incomparable, excellent person. How does this help us and give us stability? Thinking of the greatness of his character. Well, let's consider our own characters for a moment. If we're honest, we're anything but great. Part of his greatness was exercising his sovereign power and sovereign meekness to save us from ourselves. Because our characters could not be described as morally great. By ourselves, we are selfish. 
self-centered. We keep putting ourselves on the throne of our lives and pushing God to the margins. It's been the same since Eden, the first sin, when Adam and Eve fell into the trap and said, we can be God ourselves. We can have the authority in what is morally good and bad. We can rule ourselves and put God under our authority. Where we have sinned, where we have failed, Christ has not sinned and has not failed. So because of his moral excellence, his moral greatness, we have hope. Hope that gives us stability when we do consider our own poverty of spirit. You know, I'm reading through the letters of John Newton at the moment, still going uh, since the start of the summer, and I just continually come back to one line where John Newton said, when I consider my own performance, I grieve. But God has given us Christ. And because of his performance, we can rejoice in him all the day. I find that so helpful practically as a Christian when I feel my own condemnation and guilt and shame. I just say, Lord, although I feel like this, I feel my poverty, you've given me Christ and I can rejoice in him all day long. He is a king who is truly great. Well then, finally, the fourth aspect of this king's reign that sets him apart as incomparable and as stabilizing is seen here in the never-endingness of his reign. I don't know how to put that really in any other way. We've seen here the uniqueness of his birth. We've seen the significance of his name. We've seen the greatness of his character. And now we see the never-endingness of his reign. You could say the never-ending nature of his reign, but that's maybe not as catchy. In verse 33 we read, And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. I love this. Of his kingdom, his kingly rule, there will be no end. Tomorrow, many will watch the funeral of another earthly monarch whose reign has been ended by death. As I said at the beginning of the service, death reigns over all other earthly kings and queens. But this incomparable king ends the reign of death. On the cross, Jesus bore our sin. He bore the wrath of God that should have been coming down full force upon us. He bore our sin in himself, our punishment. He took it to the grave. He carried our sin and he buried it with him in the grave. Our King, Jesus, his body led in state in the tomb for a time. But it certainly was not a grand laying in state. But on the third day, he broke death open. And he rose from that state of death. You can, you can imagine this. You imagine three days in, in Westminster Hall. The lid of that coffin is pushed back and Queen stands. Imagine the response. 
You're my husband. What? Well, this is our story. This is the truth. No other earthly monarch would rise from the grave. But this king stood fast. He pushed the, the lid of the coffin, as it were, back. And he said, Death, submit to my lordship. He reigns over all. As Peter said on the day of Pentecost, it was not possible for him to be held by death. He defeated death. He destroyed death, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You see, our true king, King Jesus, has the power of an indestructible life. Because he is without beginning, he is without end. He is eternal. In Revelation 1.17, I love the confidence of this statement. Jesus speaks to a weary, persecuted, discouraged church. And he says, fear not. I am the first. I am the last. and the living one. I died, but behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death. I have the keys. I am the authority over death. The Gettys and Stuart Townend wrote in that wonderful hymn, Jesus is Lord. The tomb is gloriously empty. Not even death could crush this king of love. The price is paid. The chains are loose. And we're forgiven. And we can run into the arms of God. You see, because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. We know who holds the future. Life is worth living just because he lives. You think of those who have gone before you, who were in Christ and who have died. Because Christ broke open death and made a path through it, they live more alive than ever. You see, because he has a never-ending reign that is not even ended by death, he is incomparable. This never-ending reign gives us the real stability that we long for. Nothing ever in heaven or earth or under the earth, no power will ever <coughs> remove the center, Jesus Christ, from his throne. Nothing will ever take away that center. That is a rock-solid center, center in a state of flux. And that will never, ever ever change. Nothing has the power to overthrow our King Jesus. That is the greatest news in the universe. A reign through life and a reign through death. One day we will die. This is the King who lives and will meet us in our death to take us by the hand and shepherd us through the valley of the shadow of death to the place prepared by him for us in his kingdom. He invites us, this is mind blowing, onto his throne to enjoy his reign with him. Revelation 3.21, to the one who conquers, I'll grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says 
to the churches. You see, here's more than just stability. Here's incredible hope. Invited to participate in all the benefits and blessings and position of the reign of Christ. Imagine Jesus saying, come on. Come and join me on my throne. That means come and join me in all the benefits and blessings of my reign. Could you ever see an earthly monarch saying to you, come on up here and sit me in my throne. His unique beginning gives us the chance of a new beginning. His amazing name speaks of the mission that saves us from sin. His great character makes up for all our failures. His reign over death means we have a living shepherd who will lead us through death. His reign doesn't last a mere 70 years. His reign is eternal. We will one day stand before him and we will say, Your Majesty. And we will be speaking of a majesty that really is majestic. In the end, as Revelation 7 tells us, he will defeat all that is evil. He will bring this present evil age to an end. He will end everything that destabilizes our lives. He will bring us into a place of perfect rest. And with that beautiful vision of Revelation 7 before us, we'll close this morning. Here is what Christ made known to his suffering church to give them a vision of hope for the future. Here is the vision of the church at rest in the kingdom. Therefore they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Isn't that beautiful? They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them by day nor shall any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This incomparable king is our steady center in the midst of constant flux. A center that will never give way. That is the truth that I want burning in your heart and mind as you look at what happens tomorrow temporary monarch that is a shadow of a far greater king. Let's pray. Father, the only hope we have in in the face of the reality of our own sin is this king who was called Jesus who would die on the cross and bear our sin so that we could be forgiven counted righteous adopted into your family welcomed to share the blessings and benefits of his victory over all things Christ 
has won a victory over death itself through his glorious resurrection, through the power of his indestructible life. And when we consider his incomparable and stability-giving reign, when we compare it to all other earthly kings, queens, and leaders, we see that there is no comparison. And Father, we thank you so much that this is a king we can know, a king we can walk with, a king who has said, I will be with you always. And in all the different circumstances we go through that can cause us to feel so unstable, here is a center, a rock, that will never change. And so amidst all the brokenness, all the flux, all the, the changes, we have this reference point, Christ. And thank you, Father, so much for the stability he gives to us. But we can only know that stability if we have indeed received Christ as our King, as our Lord. So I pray this morning, Father, if there are people here and they don't know Jesus, as their King, as their Lord, as their Saviour. Move powerfully by your Spirit now to awaken them from death and to bring them into the beautiful rest. The rest of the King who says, Come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And as we sing now and respond and sing of our wonderful King, whose reign will know no end, O Lord, stir us up and fill our hearts with thankfulness, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and respond with the words of that wonderful hymn, Crying Hymn with Men in Christ.
praise you, our glorious King, together this morning. And now may the blessing of God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit rest, remain and abide with us now and evermore. Amen. 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 Please do be seated.